Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. I'm just, I always say the best thing you can give your kids is your own happiness. And the second best thing you can give them is vegetables. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. My guest today is health coach and former pediatrician, Dr. Olena Kerrick, who works with many clients to help them lead healthier lives and teach their kids healthy living habits. This is going to be an episode that will help busy parents with childhood nutrition and particularly those who have picky eaters. We talk about what picky eating is and why it's so common, how demonstration routines, systems and repetition can help. We also talk about our changing taste buds throughout childhood and adulthood, and also the keys behind habit change that is more for the adult uh, listener. So, you know, creating a vision of what the healthiest version of you looks like, and then putting in processes to ensure that you stick to those as well. You can check out all of Elena's books and content at drolena.com. And if you're in the market for habit change, you should really check out my weekly newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. You can subscribe on the website at thedoctorskitchen.com. Every week, I will share with you a recipe and something to inspire you to lead a healthier life. It might be something to listen to, something to watch, something to read, something that will definitely brighten up your week. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Dr. Elena. Um, what do you want me to call you, by the way? Because you refer to yourself in your book as Lena. I think you said your dad called you Loopy Lena. Oh, yeah, my dad calls me Lena. <laughs> but my brand name is Dr. Lena. So Dr. Lena, like you don't have to use the doctor all the time. I'm sure you don't get people. No, to no, don't. But my website is Dr. Lena. So like that's the introduction. And then it's funny, though, isn't it? Like even on when I do TV and radio stuff, they always insist that they call you Dr you know, Dr. Alina or Dr. Rupi or whatever, but um, 
and and people think that you should do that in real life as well. I'm like, no, no, you just call me Rupi. That's fine. <laughs> when I was working as in pediatrics, we did used to introduce ourselves as this is Dr. Lisa right, and this yeah. is Dr. Alina. But I think that was for the kids, really. Mm. Actually, it's weird because within A&E, um, the fashion changed over the last couple of years um, after I qualified as a GP. So they no longer wanted you to formalize you as a doctor in the hospital and instead come up with a friendlier approach. So my standard intro whenever I see patients in, in either A&E or GP clinic is, my name's Rupi. I'm one of the doctors working here. And so that that yeah that that like little shift in the way you address yourself. But certain people, I think they like the authority of having a doctor in front of them, so they can ask them all those questions. But I, I guess it really just depends. I mean, how 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 would you introduce yourself now? Now I would say, like I would introduce myself if it was like a professional thing as Doctor Alina. But that's more because my website is Doctor Alina and my brand name right. is Doctor Alina. And then yeah. It's funny though, some of my clients like to call me Dr. Alina. And I'm like, just call me Alina. But I think they yeah. like that. They like that, like, you're a doctor kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny. Anyway, um, well, let's talk, about, uh, uh, talk a little bit about you and your history, because I think that's really interesting. You sort of describe yourself as someone who wants to chop and change a lot and have new experiences. So tell us about how you you even got into medicine in the first place. Oh, that's a long, long story. So yeah, <laughs> I guess when I was growing up, I didn't know at all what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel, you know, typical itchy feet. Like you, I ended up going to Australia. Oh, I love traveling. It just, you know, fills you with that excitement. And the first thing I did when I was 18, this was a long, long, long time ago, is I went to South Africa and I worked in a school there, really interesting time. It was just before Nelson Mandela was um, voted in. So you can tell how long mm. ago it was. And I mm. remember just helping with the kids were having their vaccinations actually. And there was a doctor vaccinating them. And I just had this kind of moment of, oh my goodness, you've never really properly considered medicine. Like that's it, I want to be a doctor. And there's been times in my life where it's just been like decision made in two seconds. And that was one of them. It did mean I have to go, had to go and, you know, get into medical school, which by that time I'd left school. So it wasn't as easy as all oh, your teachers helping you. To cut a long story mm. short, I took three years out and then went to medical school. But three exciting years. At that time, I was really young and, you know, desperate to get to university, enjoy that university life. <laughs> but yeah, that's how it happened. Okay, wow. So, so you... you... You had to redo A-levels, I'm assuming, and do the correct ones so that you could apply for med school in the first place. And then you went to, where, where'd you go to med school? Bristol, Bristol. So I had- Oh, Bristol. I love Bristol. It was a oh fabulous God, time. I had such a great time there. But it, and it was really great training. And I loved, you know, being involved in patients. I remember in our first year, like itching to get into the hospital. But I had maths and physics and that I needed chemistry. So I couldn't do pre-med because I had maths and physics- um, so I had to go back and do chemistry. And I remember this one time doing work experience in Exeter Hospital at Wanford Hospital. And this doctor was a pediatrician, actually. And he was talking to us and he said, oh, you know, he asked me a question. And I sort of said, well, I didn't get in this year, so I'm not going to I'm not going to be a doctor. And later on, he found me in the foyer just waiting to go home. And he basically said, you know, if it's something you really want in your life, you will make it happen. As in mm. go back 
reapply, make that thing happen. And, and that's what I did, essentially. Amazing. That's so cool. And then so from, from there, you did all your, your pre-med stuff. And then uh, I'm assuming you went straight into pediatric training? Well, at that time, we had to do a year of what they called us house plants. I don't know if you were called the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember that house officer years. So I did that in Cheltenham. And then I went to Australia because I still loved traveling. Oh, okay. And I worked in Brisbane for a bit and was working in A&E there. And there was a kids hospital next door and I ended up working there. And that was the beginning of my pediatric career. So after I finished in Brisbane, I came home and got on to, they didn't have the training schemes that they have now. It wasn't like, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way through. It was go and get an SHO job here and another job here. But essentially that was the beginning of my pediatric career. Amazing. And so uh, then what happened? Because you're not doing pediatrics anymore. (laughs) You've moved into a a whole different uh, approach to to healthcare, I guess, which obviously is built on the foundations of everything that you've done previously. Yeah. Well, long story short, we moved to Spain. And, you know, there's a backstory to that. Another pandemic um, in, you know, swine flu at that time. Yeah. Yeah, um, complicated history there but a long story was you know I still I wanted to live abroad for lifestyle reasons and I say I moved to Spain with my eyes wide shut like I just thought I would move across start doing pediatrics here it just it wasn't as simple as that it took me an entire year to get my degree recognized here and this was years ago when the UK was part of the European Union um, mm. and eventually I did work here but they have a very different structure here. And I would essentially have had to go back and do all of my training again in Spanish, including my finals. And I was, right. and by this time I've got four young kids. I'm like, oh, this just. Do you have four young kids throughout this, this period of time where you're training and you're No, traveling? no, no. When I was training, I had two. And then when we moved to Spain, so I moved when my oldest was just about to turn three and my youngest was one. And then we got here Soon after that, I fell pregnant with t- twins. My husband blames me for that. Blames me, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he thinks that are a bundle of joy now. <laughs> Life is never dull, put it that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, the four kids were in, in Spain and, you know, thinking, do I want to go and redo my training? Because I never meant to give up clinical work. I love clinical mm. work. But you know what it's Mm. like. It's stressful nights, weekends. It comes with a lot of sacrifices for your family. So I did try working here in Spain. But essentially, I was doing uh, like GP work, which wasn't what Mm. I had been trained to do. It wasn't what I was used to doing in the UK. Mm. Um, And yeah, that also came to a bit of an end. But at the time, I had been building up my online business. So I started off you know, thinking about picky eating for kids. So, hey, guess what? Two of my kids were picky eating. And one of the things, you know, when I was a pediatric doctor, we had so many people would come into clinic and say, oh, my child's got a tummy ache. And so many of them had constipation. And I always remember saying, hey, the good news is this is so easy to treat. You don't need any medicines. You just need to eat a healthy diet. Get those vegetables in your kids. It's going to be fabulous. And then fast forward to being a parent and realizing, oh my goodness, you know, I'm presenting my kids with vegetables, with healthy foods. And you know what? One day, my three-year-old crying on the toilet, tears rolling down his face because he is in agony because 
disaster guess what he's he's constipated because mm. essentially what kids do or what my kids did was pick out the past you know i would say for example give them vegetable pasta eat all that pasta leave all those delicious vegetables and i realized at that point it's not as easy as just presenting them with healthy foods so mm. that was the beginning of me looking at nutrition and all the things that we hadn't been taught at medical school you know, I know that you know all of these things, but so so much interesting information coming out now about, you know, vegetables and biomes and plant-based life. But for me at that time, it was how do you, how do we help our picky eaters? And how do we mm. teach children healthy eating in a way that when they grow up, what they're doing is just eating normally. They think they're eating normally because that's just what they do. So that yeah, was the start. Yeah. I, it's almost... Um that culture of building a healthy relationship with food definitely starts at such a young age. And that's why our counterparts in the, in the Mediterranean uh, really have nailed it because they have this normal way of eating that is diverse and colorful and lots of plants, et cetera. So, and I think that explains what some of the differences that we see in health outcomes. And, and also I think we've all been guilty of, having that sort of uh, near patronizing conversations with parents where we're like, yeah, just, you know, you don't need Movicol. You don't need to have any of these sort of liquid uh, laxatives. What we need to do is increase their water content, increase their fiber content, have lots of diversity in vegetables and they'll be fine. And you really kind of brush over the fact that implementation of that advice is super, super hard. And that's where, the crux of the matter is and, and and i guess you know you've had personal experience of this so why don't we talk about the issues around picky eaters why why are kids picky eating because this is a very common phenomena and 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 what kind of practical solutions you you've you've come up for for your your patients well it's a yeah it's a really interesting topic of conversation like what is picky eating and why and i i like to look at it as a spectrum so when you talk to parents some people will say you know my kids don't eat mushrooms they're a picky eater and i'm like that's kind of normal <laughs> to be perfectly honest yeah. So there is... Yeah, I, I never used to like mushrooms myself. I'm not, I changed my opinion in my 20s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me too. So there are some poor vegetables. I don't know what it is. Some vegetables are just like, we don't like them. And then there are children, you know, there's different spectrums of children. So, you know, children who have, are on the autistic spectrum, they have problems with texture and certain different things, you know, sensory issues that affect them. But there are also children who have what I kind of think of like quite anxious children. And I, this fits mm. the profile of a couple of my kids is that they're anxious and they expect things to happen in a certain way. It's almost like they want to control what's going on and food is a way of being able to control that. So we have to essentially work with our kids. And in, in short, essentially, the way you get round picky eating is you give them choice out of all of those healthy foods. Now, if you take a step back, really what that means is the best way to teach your children healthy eating is to demonstrate healthy eating yourself. And this is one of the reasons why I moved into moving away from like focusing on kids to focusing on mothers and parents because so many people would be in that situation going, oh, I want my kids to eat healthily. And when we really looked at their diet, their diet was very high in what I call white refined carbohydrates, packaged foods and things like that. And so 
that's a really difficult place to teach your kids. So the good news is if you eat healthily, essentially your children are going to eat healthily. There are a few caveats with that. So one big piece of the puzzle, I think, is don't create an emotional link to food with your children. Mm. And that means don't punish them. You know, don't, you know, you're being disobedient. You can't have pudding or you've been really Mm. great. Let's go and have ice cream. And I'm not saying you can't eat ice cream, but don't attach it to a reward. And I think that's a really interesting part of the puzzle. And a lot of the people I work with now who want to lose weight or just get more healthy, a big part of the puzzle for them is emotional eating. You know, and if you Mm. think about it, if you're eating, if you're put, if you've got too much weight, you've eaten more than your body needs. Why have you eaten more than your body needs? And that essentially is emotional eating, which essentially is a habit that you just need to change. But what you want to be really aware of is not to show that to your children, not to teach that to your children, essentially. So fixing your emotional eating will help you not pass it on to your children that you know everybody wants to have a good relationship with food we eat food to nourish our bodies and we can enjoy our food but essentially Mm -hmm. the reason is to nourish our bodies rather than because we're stressed or feeling unworthy or bored whatever the trigger is i I wonder because you work with a lot of adults um for a variety of different reasons as well and one of them you just um mentioned there was weight I wonder how far down the rabbit hole you go of discussing their relationship with food when they were growing up and if they had those reward uh, slash, um, for want of a better word, punishments uh, for for eating when, when they were growing up. Is that something that comes up quite often? And is this a pattern that we can intentionally... That's interesting. And to be honest, I haven't asked, but one thing I do notice, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit is when I talk to people who are very much in this diet culture Mm. of I'm going to do a diet a lot of them did things like go to Weight Watchers when they were eight Mm. years old you know it was part of their cultures like their mother was doing it and so they were taught the this sort of relationship with food of oh my goodness you know you've got a party coming up or it's the summer holidays you want to look good in your swimming suit let's let's go on a diet for a couple of months as opposed to hey, this is food, we enjoy food, and we've got limits with food. But essentially, you know, I genuinely don't think people need to be hungry to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Um, But that kind of, oh, my goodness, I have to really be disciplined, I have to really punish myself in order to get to the weight that I want to, and that has been passed on and learnt from a very early age. Yeah, yeah, I I always like to look at um the evolutionary lens of why kids, for example, are picky eaters. There's got to be a reason as to why they are picky eaters because it's such a common phenomena. Is there anything that you come across perhaps from uh, research or uh, population studies, or maybe just, you know, uh, looking at how communities interact with uh, kids that can explain the picky eating phenomena? Well, there are theories. And I think there's two sort of facets to this. But there is a theory that having a certain amount of, you know, fear of certain foods was a survival instinct, you know, like don't don't go and pick all the berries because some of them are going to be poisonous. So that was Mm. a survival instinct. But I think the the sort of flip side is now we live in a society where food is so readily available. You know, in the past, 
you know, a treat would be go and get a handful of blackberries, go and pick them yourself. Or, you know, if you want a handful of nuts, you have to climb up the nut tree, you have to take the shell off, and now you're rewarded with some nuts. But what happens now? We go to the supermarket, we literally open a packet, and we've got these foods that are so, so calorie dense, and we're so used to eating them. And the reality is that both parents and children know that if they don't like what's on their plate, it's so easy to get something else. Mm. Like even when I was growing up, I think my parents didn't feel that there was that option. It was like, here's here's your food, take it or leave it. If you're hungry, you're going to eat it. Unless it's something super, super disgusting, you're essentially going to eat it because you know there's no option. And I have to be honest, my mum cooked some things that I didn't really like, but I <laughs> ate them. Curried parsnip soup. Oh, sorry, mum, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't like your curried parsnip soup. And when she cooked it, I'd be a bit like, "Eh." but I ate it because I was hungry and there was, there's no option. But the problem parents face now is that essentially that's a limit that was put in. And my mother put that limit in really without knowing about it. She didn't do it from a, hey, I'm thinking about limits. It's just, she didn't have an option. And so now Mm. we have to artificially enforce that limit you don't have to do it in a mean and horrible way and you definitely have to make sure there are some acceptable foods in front of your children the idea isn't to starve them but when there's always an option of something else it's really easy for that child to just go do you know what this isn't my favorite food i'm not eating Mm. it and my kids are like that you know if i gave my kids the option they'd eat cake and spaghetti bolognese all the time (laughs) but they don't have that option So, you know, we have to teach that to our kids. Yeah. Okay. So we're collecting like a nice little um, sort of uh, uh, selection of of different strategies here for for picky eaters. So demonstrating uh, healthy eating through action yourself, um, making sure that you're giving them as much variety as possible, giving some sort of guides. I don't want to say restrictions, but like some sort of guides as to what's available in front of them. What are the other sort of things that you've come across perhaps from your own personal experience of, of four children uh, that I'm sure? Of- yeah, I think routine is really important. I think routine for adults, for kids, our bodies like routine and lots of people don't like routine and they find routine restrictive. I personally, and all about habits, routines and systems, because I think it actually buys us time. When we're busy thinking Mm. about, oh my goodness, what have I got to cook for dinner? And this was definitely me a few years ago. My thought would be, what do I have to cook for dinner? Not that my kids are going to eat it anyhow. But once you have taken all of that away, suddenly your brain is freed up to do so many more interesting things than think about what's for dinner. So I think routine is really important. So kids and parents know, you know, we have breakfast, snack, it doesn't matter what it looks like, as long as it's the same, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, and you've got that routine. And then within that framework, you're offering healthy choices. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I always say the best thing you can give your kids is your own happiness. And the second best thing you can give them is vegetables. So please, <laughs> please make sure there's some vegetables. I'm all like, just add vegetables. You, you don't have to say, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, Friday night pizza, don't want pizza, but a reasonable portion of pizza 
and vegetables that your kids like. And, you know, I know there's lots of people who say, my kids don't like vegetables. They get used to them. They do get used to them. Yeah, that was going to be my pushback because I, I get pushback on that a lot. Or oh, they don't like butternut squash. Or oh, they don't like bro- broccoli. Oh, they won't They won't have that. Oh, I've tried this number of times and it, you know, it hasn't worked. What, what, what sort of um, sense of positive information can we give those people? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are like, those are my kids. That's literally my kid right there. And I've tried and I've tried and I've failed so many times. Like, what what do you do when you're in that desperate, desperate situation? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. And I think there's two, two aspects again. And number one is you have to look at everything that you are eating and everything that you're eating as a family. And if you're eating a diet that is really, really high in salt and sugar and packaged foods, then those fruit and vegetables are not going to compete. So mm. I always talk about something called the strawberry test. One Easter, mm. my kids have chocolate. They're normal kids. We have chocolate at Easter. Easter time for us here in Spain is beautiful, delicious strawberries. So I eat a strawberry, like amazing Spanish strawberries bursting with flavor, delicious, delicious. And then have a little bit of chocolate and sort of steal a bit of my child's chocolate. And then I go back and have another strawberry. Now my mouth is full of sugar from the ridiculously sweet chocolate. And I have this strawberry, the same strawberry, but now it tastes really acidic, not very nice. I'm like, why would I eat this strawberry? It's not very nice. Mm. And the reason is because we have just flooded ourselves with sugar. And we do that, you know, if you're eating packaged food, that's what you're doing all the time. And in fact, it's really interesting. Our taste buds grow back, they regenerate. And it takes about two weeks for our taste buds to regenerate. So two weeks, right? Yeah. If you're, um, I always recommend people do like a two week reboot where you just eat perfectly. I say perfectly in, you know, scare quotes. Yeah. yeah. For a couple of weeks, partly to prove that you can do it, but also because it retrains your mind and it retrains your brain to say, hey, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And actually these fruit and vegetables are tasty. And so Mm. it's the same with our kids. Our kids, if they're constantly eating packaged foods, which are high in calories, why do they want to eat these fruit and vegetables? So one thing is to look at everything that you're presenting and think about the whole week. And, you know, it's not like, oh, my goodness, you can never eat ice cream or chocolate. But it's about eating it in moderation and realizing that the more of that that they eat, the less of the fruit and vegetables they're going to eat. And so then we come down to individual fruit and vegetables. And, you know, I think children often say, I don't like something when what they really mean is I'm a bit scared of it and I have no idea what it is. And there is a certain, you know, you have to repeat, repeat, repeat. You you know, if you present things more times, they are going to get used to it. There are also children who like it's in their mind here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I have Mm. this, fear of certain vegetables. Now you can't fight that. Um, there are tests, you, there are things you can do. I do this really amazing thing called magic thinking and it really just, or the magic likes and dislikes, it helps you tune up and tune down what you like and what you don't like. And it's just like really getting involved in how you perceive that fruit or vegetable within your brain and you can change it however you do have to want to do it in the first place so for example my 13 year old doesn't like bananas and he's quite happy not liking bananas thank you and he doesn't want to do this exercise so that he can like bananas but my nine-year-old I did it with him for red apples he wouldn't touch red apples 
Now he eats them. Strangely, they're the same as green apples, but he didn't <laughs> used to believe that. So a lot of it is in their brain as opposed to the flavor, the texture. Now, obviously, flavor and texture are important as well. But they, I think kids have this accepted list. And once something's on the accepted list, it is accepted and they will just eat it. But then they have the yuck list. This is really disgusting. I hate it. Yeah. I never want to eat it. And then a lot of things in the middle of, you know, I say I don't like it, but I'm a bit unsure about it. And our job as parents is really to move all of those unknown things onto the accepted list. If it's yuck, disgusting, mm. just leave it alone. Just accept that they don't like it and work around that. But ideally, you just want to grow that accepted list. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's lots of parallels amongst adults as well. Like I always talk about how uh, to to lead a healthier lifestyle where you naturally opt in for the uh, ingredients that are fruit, vegetables, whole foods, minimally processed. You almost have to retrain your taste buds and you have to grow an acceptance for those foods and an appreciation for them. And that has to take time. I'm really interested to, to know about how the taste buds uh, regenerate after two weeks. And I think, you know, those um, uh, little reboots or, or patterns of eating for short periods of time with that in mind could be really useful for people. Uh, I wonder if um, there are natural stages within infancy into uh, young adulthood where kids taste buds actually naturally change and you can reintroduce foods in particular periods is that something you've come across in in your practice or i don't know that's a really good question actually um i don't know the answer to that question i do know that children like they develop their feeding habits by the age of three it's really really mm. really early on the good news is if your children are older than three you can retrain them it's not like oh my goodness, this is how they're going to eat. But, you know, what I would say is when they're weaning, when you're introducing foods, introduce as many things as you can. What I do see is in toddlerhood, actually children almost change. So, you know, when you've got a baby and you introduce foods, my oldest son, he would eat a banana every single day. And something happens in toddlerhood, partly they learn the word no, but, you know, they're also like getting this autonomy. They want to be in charge. Things change then. And I think taste buds, or it might be that they start thinking about things differently. I don't know. Mm. And there can be certain um, situations where you have like a really nasty yuck response. So, for example, my oldest son, he used to like fish when he was quite young. He had a very unfortunate event where we'd been to a friend's house They'd had all these amazing bright, bright pink plums and then came home and had fish for dinner and then unfortunately vomited this disgusting pink fishy vomit. And since yeah. that day, he has not liked fish. And oh. that's a disgust reaction. And unless you go in and sort of like start looking at your brain and rewiring your brain, that's not going to disappear. That's going to stay with him, you know, until he decides he wants to do something about it, that's going to stay with him for, for life yeah yeah i have a similar um story it was with bangers and mash when i was a kid and uh uh 
there was nothing else that my mum would give me and, and she said I need to finish my my plate and then uh, I did and then I promptly vomited afterwards probably because I'd found some chocolate earlier in the day and I'd eaten it and I hadn't told my mum or something like that but um but yeah no that that's given me like a nasty reaction to to bangers and mash ever since then I think I must have only been like seven or eight but um, looking at the other side of the equation considering there is so much more information about the hazardous effects of processed food, um, UHPs. You know, there's a lot more information online. You know, this podcast, for example, is a source of information that could lead to an unhealthy relationship with healthy eating. And that knowledge from a parent's perspective could potentially imprint onto a child, particularly when you know about like, you know, the impact of sugar sweetened beverages and fructose and how it mainlines the liver and the rising rates of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children in um, westernized nations. I wonder if there is a way of uh, presenting this sort of information to your your clients and, and the general public in a way that isn't going to create fear mongering. You mentioned the word moderation before. What, what does that mean to you? And, and, and how do you how do you get around that uh, th- this this issue of, of over information and how that can create health anxiety? I think moderation as well. It's about meeting people where they are. So if I come and say, hey, you have to eat like mm. this and you're eating like over here and I'm asking you to eat over here, it's it's just not going to match. So part of understanding is understanding where somebody is so that you can help them move forwards in a way that works for them. And I'm a great believer in if it's not easy for you, you're not going to do it. So as you say, you really have to find the enjoyment of all of these things. Answering your question specifically, there's a really good resource which I use called the Infant Toddler Forum, um, which is a UK-based website, and they have some really good images to show children. And what they recommend is one sweet treat a day, so something like a biscuit or something a day. And actually, if you look at those portion sizes, one of the problems that parents have is that they hugely overestimate the amount of portion sizes that children need. And so this leads to giving Mm. children far more sugary stuff than they need and also thinking, oh, my goodness, they need to eat more fruit and vegetables than they need. You know, you're here giving them this huge, great plate of cabbage, whereas really they just need a really small bit of cabbage. But if you're giving them too many sweet things, they will compensate by not eating something else. So one sweet, sweet, you know, biscuit or something a day and then allowing them to have something like a candy, you know, a a sugary ice cream or something like that once a week. Now, those are their recommendations. Um, And whether you stick to them or not, you know, as I say, it's about what works for your family. But I think a lot of it is about attitude as well in terms Mm. of, you know, we make beautiful, healthy things. And I love doing that, but they're full of fruit and my favorite is aubergine brownies. <laughs> aubergine brownies. I've never heard of that before. Haven't you? Haven't you? They're no, fabulous. Wow. They're fabulous. Only one of my children will eat them because the others are aubergine phobic. But, oh. you know, there are things that you can do to, to work around this. Cocoa powder, I think, is amazing. It makes everything chocolatey, but it doesn't have the sugar. So yeah. the simple things that you can do, and you don't even have to have those shop-bought biscuits, But I think part of it is about this attitude that we have of, yeah, you know, my kids, we've just had friends from the UK staying. My kids had fizzy drinks. I personally hate them, 
But, you know, as you say, it's about getting that balance right of allowing them to have some stuff without making it really forbidden. When you make it really forbidden, what do they do? They just want it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that antagonistic response, isn't it, that children have of, well, if this is meant to be naughty, then uh, I'm going to try and indulge where I can, right? Actually, you mentioned mentioned something um, in, in the notes around when children go to university and they sort of wild out for a few months, but then they revert back to their normal way of eating, is that? Oh, yes, that's a study that I have seen. I have to confess, I can't remember the exact details, but essentially what they did was they looked at kids who went off to university and in the first term it was an american study so they had trimesters but they went off and they you know did whatever i guess going to fast food restaurants and eating like their parents wouldn't want them to eat and then in the second one they reverted back to the sort of familial habits and i have to say from a personal point of view my mum always cooked vegetables with our dinner so i grew up like just thinking, oh, a meal isn't complete unless it has cabbage or greens or some kind of vegetables with it. Now I didn't do, this was ages before I was thinking about what is healthy nutrition. As I say, you know, as you know, in medical school, they don't tell us this stuff. So when I was at medical school, I would eat cabbage. Not, I mean, I knew it was healthy. Of course I knew it was healthy, but it was far more out of habit that I was just used to eating it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like that for, for me as well. I mean, we we always grew up having a salad on the side, even if we were having like a, a pasta or a pizza or, you know, we were having takeout night, which we did once a week. A meal was never complete unless we had our big bowl of salad. That was like my dad's job to do. Uh, and my mum was doing all the other cooking and stuff because she's just like a, a wonderful exploratory cook. Um, and I and I guess those habits definitely do imprint on you when you become a young adult as well, such that you revert to that way of eating. Hopefully, anyway, if it's a, it's a if it's a good way of eating. Um, uh, my my next question was really around the practical aspects of how we get good nutrition into children and what that literally means. Because I get a lot of questions about, okay, well, how much protein should I be giving my kids? How much fiber? How, you know, should I be weighing food out and that kind of behavior? Now, my initial instinct intuitively is to sort of err on not doing that kind of stuff, because that's very much an adult approach to healthy eating that I think is useful for some people, particularly if they're looking to maintain weight or lose weight. But for kids, I think that can instill the wrong sort of culture around around healthy eating. How, how do you tackle that question that you inevitably get from, from parents who, who are wondering exactly what to give their kids and, and what that looks like on the plate? Yeah, great question. And to be honest, I don't think adults need to count calories. I know that yeah. we, we want to eat, you know, we don't want to eat calorie dense um, foods, but I personally don't think counting calories creates a good relationship with food. Now, the good news is that vegetables are naturally low in calories. Like if you do the maths, it is amazing. So a hobnob biscuit is around like 70 kilocalories for one. 100 grams of cabbage is something like 25 calories. So how much cabbage can you eat? Like 300 grams of calorie um, cabbage for one biscuit. Now, it's really easy. I will put my hand on my heart and say, you know, when I was revising for my finals, I think it was chocolate digestives that I used to eat, like an entire packet in one sitting. And I love cabbage, I really do, but I have never eaten an entire cabbage in one go because you just can't do it. So if you're steering yourself, 
and your kids towards more vegetables, you will naturally, if you if your aim is weight loss as a parent, then you will lose weight and your children will grow up naturally eating those foods, which are going to nourish them, but aren't going to give them that extra weight. So, you know, and I think this question of protein is really interesting. A lot of people are worried that we don't get enough protein. In the Western world, we get so much protein, it's ridiculous. Most people eat far, far, far more protein than they need. Um, We don't actually need that much protein. And we can get protein from plant sources as well, which, you know, typically people eat meat every single day. You don't need to do that. A small amount of meat if you're going to eat meat or plant-based proteins. My policy that I have in my house, my kids love bread, refined white carbohydrates, which, you know, you don't have to cut them out entirely. I personally don't eat very much bread, but I give them a portion. So, you know, I might say, hey, there's two small slices of bread. Like we make our own bread. So it's little bits. It's not like a big loaf, but here's the portion of bread. Here's some protein, you know, that isn't plant-based protein because my kids would just eat all of that. And so you give them a reasonable portion of that and then you can eat as much fruit and vegetables as you want. And I do include fruit in that as well because I think particularly, well, for adults as well, but particularly for children, what I want is for them to think, okay, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat fruit as opposed to, okay, I'm hungry, I'm going to go and get a packet of something. I would much rather you're eating fruit and fruit comes with so many, you know, good bits and pieces as well. And if they're hungry... They will eat fruit and vegetables if it's, you know, acceptable fruit and vegetables. My kids love carrot sticks. They love broccoli. They'll eat tomatoes. They have to be nice, ripe tomatoes. They can't be, (laughs) my kids are, you know, quite picky about the foods that they have growing up in Spain. We're just so spoiled in terms of fruit and vegetables. But if they're there going, I'm only hungry for chocolate, I'm like, there's no such thing as only hungry for chocolate. If you're hungry, you will eat celery. If you won't eat celery, you know, if celery is acceptable to you, if you're saying I'm only going to eat chocolate, that's, that's an emotion. That's not true hunger. That's I've got into habit and you haven't kind of untangled it. Yeah. I, I sort of agree with your kids sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I'm hungry for chocolate <laughs> and there's nothing else that's going to satisfy my uh, my hunger for... I mean, I do have dark chocolate, to be fair. So it's sort of the healthier type of chocolate, which is mostly um, cocoa butter fats and uh, the cocoa bean and, and not very much sugar. But yeah, sometimes I do like... I just need that that taste of something you know, bitter and warming. Yeah, and, from time yeah. to time, that's okay. But you know when you're saying, okay, it's always... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there yeah. Are t- and also, there are times when we're like, yeah, I just want that. But that's not hunger. That's like a, hey, I need this thing. And even if that is emotional, emo- like, I think everyone does emotional eating. Emotional eating is only a problem when it's, like, there's a line that you go over and it becomes too much. So my thing is, I border meat. I'm sitting at my desk. I'm a bit bored. I go and get some nuts or an apple. Also, I'm eating healthy foods. So it becomes less of a problem. But the reality is humans do emotionally eat. It's part of our society to eat emotionally. But yeah, when it becomes a problem, it's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I guess because food is so attached to not just 
the nutrient value it's more the um the pleasure of eating it's why it's hardwired in our brains it's why we have such a a dopamine response to certain foods and stuff we're we're hardwired to love and be part of communities but also eat as well and that's why you know one of the best pleasures of of life is is going out to a restaurant or sharing a meal with friends or inviting people over and you know having something celebratory as a a meal um so yeah I, i guess why that's probably why it's so easy to fall into that habit of emotional eating where you're you're trying to fill a void uh perhaps with, with, with food is that is that something that you you come up with a lot with it because you do a lot of um work with adults these days as well as a health coach how do you instill those values and, and what sort of tips do you have for for perhaps the adults as we we step change yeah yeah really really good question so i think there are two approaches so the first thing like i teach four pillars so healthy eating i say exercise or movement that lights you up delicious healthy sleep and your emotional pillar so those are the four pillars and building up good habits and systems in all of those pillars is going to help you with emotional eating because for example emotional eating might be because you're stressed what's the cure for that well you need to do more exercise, you need to sleep well, you need to make sure that you're using what I call maintenance tools, which can be different for everybody. But it might be meditation, it might be reading, it might be coloring, but making sure that your life has got all of those things in. And then you need to have what I call like um, emergency tools. So it's really looking at what is going on when you're doing that. It's essentially self-awareness and getting to that stage of, okay, When do I emotionally eat and why do I emotionally eat? And once you've unraveled that, then you can start to think, okay, now I'm tempted to emotionally eat. Quite often, a lot of people find that actually once they've used those tools and reset all their habit systems and routines, then a lot of that emotional eating comes away. But not everybody. Some people, for example, if you binge eat, that's a much trickier so, you know, you're starting much further back. You've got more, oops, sorry, more work to do. And it can take longer to get to the stage where you're on a more even keel. So everybody has a different starting place. But having tools that you use in that moment, and for different people, it's different, but it's understanding that this emotion is happening. And emotions don't tend to last a very long period of time. Like we might think that they last a long period of time, but what's happening is they're being triggered again and again and again. So if I get cross with my child, a lot of it, you know, I feel this emotion, understanding what that emotion feels like to me, it's different to everybody. It might be, oh my goodness, my heart is racing or I've got this, you know, constriction in my neck. Why am I getting cross with my child? Because I think that they should be behaving in a different way. So that's like how I'm Mm. thinking about it. Now, if I keep on thinking about it like that, then I'm going to keep feeling that emotion. And it feels like that emotion goes on forever and ever and ever. But the reality is that that emotion only lasts for around 90, 90 seconds or so. So if you can keep yourself distracted for that period of time, and not re-trigger it, then you can move on and do something else. So it might be that you have something like, when I feel frustrated, I'm going to do star jumps, or I'm going to count to 200, or I'm going to look out for green objects. For different people, it's different. You just have to build that into Hmm. a habit. But what you need to do is the work away from the moment, because 
once you're triggered, it's not like, hey, what am I going to do about this? You have to build that habit up out of the, the trigger zone. Creating systems so you can mellow whatever your desired uh, action is uh, or to, to, to mellow what is identified as something that is net negative for you is something that people can can practice and you've got this um this lovely system of like imagining your vision of what healthy is for you i mean i think a lot of people have, have sort of come across different pillars of health some some are four some are five you know it's all about sleep and you know tick box of things that you can do you gotta eat more vegetables you've got to exercise you've got to move more etc cetera, etc cetera. the science of that is super interesting and complicated the solutions are relatively simple if you just look at them blankly on a piece of paper the implementation of that that's the hard stuff the habit change the things that are ingrained um, and actually creating a culture going back to the top of our conversation that's where i think people struggle so what are some of the solutions what, what are the, some of the, the sorts of practices that you teach people to tick off that list of that of that perfect vision of them looking healthy that they can implement uh, perhaps after listening to this yeah another really interesting question and i think if we take a step back and have a look at habits and think well why do we have habits and what are habits and essentially habits are a shortcut to doing something and the positive thing about habits is that they're super efficient like can you imagine if you had to wake up every morning and figure out how to brush your teeth and go, oh my goodness, what's this toothbrush? What's mm. toothpaste? And you had to go through that every single day. So luckily, our subconscious brain has this thing called habits. And they are essentially things that we do without thinking. Now, the great thing about habits is we don't have to think about them, but our brain doesn't care whether that habit is a habit that is good for your health or a habit that is bad for your health. Now, habits are those things that we do in the period of time when life happens. And what happens to people is, you know, typically January the 1st, we go, right, I'm going to build a new habit. And you're thinking about building this new habit. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to walk around the block. I'm going to walk around the block. And you're still thinking about this habit. When you're thinking about it, it's what I call an acorn habit. It's not really a habit. And then life happens. And then this is what I call the rickety bridge, getting from A to B. You fall off this rickety bridge and you go back to your old habits because you never had that habit. You hadn't built that habit up. What really happens is if you build that habit up is one day you forget about it. You're still doing it. You forget about it. And then you look back two years later and go, oh, I did build up that habit two years ago and I just, I haven't noticed it. Time has just gone and I do it without thinking. But whilst you're looking at the habit, it's not a habit. So I think that's the thing. And people get disillusioned and they go, oh, I can't do it. I can't build habits. And I just say, no, you just have a human brain and a human body and that's just it. But you didn't build the habit that you're not broken. You just didn't get all the way across the bridge. And that's just it. So the question then becomes, well, how do you create a habit? And the simple answer is you just repeat, repeat, repeat. There's lots of ways to make it easier for yourself. But the bottom line is a habit is something that you just do without thinking. And how do you build up that habit? You just keep repeating it. Mm, yeah, I, I like that 
perceptual um, element of of the, of the the toothbrush analogy. Most people don't think of brushing their teeth as a habit, but it is something that we've we've definitely learned. Many of us from a young age, obviously, but you know that that's definitely something that has been trained into us. We don't naturally evolve to want to brush our teeth. Um, and I think if you can think of your habit in that respect, that's how it becomes ingrained in your day-to-day. So for example, I've meditated now for many years. When I started, I made myself meditate for 60 seconds every day because I made it small enough. I made it achievable enough. And I uh, initially had to push myself to get to that very, very small achievement every single day, such that now I can't really start my day without doing a meditation in the same way I can't start my day without brushing my teeth. And when you think about things like that, they just stack on top of each other. So a concept that perhaps a lot of people have come across is habit stacking. And in the same way, I always have greens on the side of my meal. That's just, I don't see it as a habit. I just see it as something that I do now. And I, I wonder if there are any other sort of ways that you've come across using your health coaching um, uh, practice to make it that much easier. Repetition is definitely, definitely one of them. Are there any other sort of tricks of the trade that you can share? Where do I start? I think one habit, and I say as well, we have habits in our how we think about things and habits in our emotions. And I think one integral habit that is really important is how we think about ourselves. So if we have this identity of, I am somebody who looks after myself, then from that, you're going to be making decisions that are going to benefit you. So I am somebody who always eats vegetables. When COVID happened for me, I didn't suddenly go and start buying packaged food because I never did that. That wasn't what I did before. So I still went to the vegetable market. I still bought fruit and vegetables. I still ate healthy, just not because I'm superhuman, just because that was my identity and that habit of how I think about myself was still there. So I think that is a really, really integral part that if you can start thinking of yourself as somebody who looks after yourself, prioritizes your health, from that, you will be making far better decisions. If we're thinking about everyday things, I always say it's a bit like a train. We have two different parts of our brain. And I think people don't quite understand this. Now, I'm clearly not a neuroscientist, so don't expect a technical um, definition. But essentially, we have what we call our thinking part of our brain, which is that part that goes, hey, let's give up chocolate. That's going to be really good for our health. And then the habit part, which goes, hey, it's three o'clock, it's chocolate (laughs) time. And if you think about those two things as separate things, it makes it much easier to untangle. So the role of your thinking brain is almost to lay out the train track. You know, um, those trains that the kids have, my living room is cluttered with this at the moment, but the kids lay it out, then they get a little wooden train and they push the little wooden train around. Your thinking brain is laying out the track for your day and your habit brain is just the train that's doing it. So an example for me is I used to go swimming in the swimming pool. Now I swim in the sea. It's a bit cold at the moment. But this is back before COVID happened. My kids go back to school. In in Spain, we have morning school and afternoon school. So I would walk them back to school and then I would go down to the swimming for swimming training that I had paid for where does that habit start? It starts when I leave the door to walk my kids back. And 
you know, I'm not going to not take my kids to school unless they're unwell. My kids are going to school. And so by the time I've got to school, I'm carrying my swimming stuff. I've paid for my swimming class. I'm going to go swimming. Like it's more difficult for me to do something else because I've got this identity of I look after myself. But, you know, what else am I going to do than it is to not go swimming? So it's really easy for me to go swimming to do that. Another one is, you know, going to the vegetable market. We have amazing vegetable market. What can I buy at the vegetable market? I can buy vegetables. So it's not like I'm this superhuman person who, you know, never buys cakes. It's not like, you know, when you see a cake, you go, oh my goodness, that looks good. You want to not make decisions. You don't want your brain to be making decisions in the moment because you're always going to make the wrong decision. You want to make it such that you only have the healthy decisions to make. Go to vegetable market. You can buy vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, I'm going to come home with a week's worth of vegetables because otherwise my kids are going to go yeah, hungry. Yeah, to put to personalize it for myself. So, as someone who doesn't really have an issue with with healthy eating um and uh can generally make the right decisions when it comes to what I'm going to eat um because I've been practicing this for so long now. Some of the decisions that I struggle with are am I going to watch another episode of a series that I'm watching on Netflix or or BBC or whatever and I I ask myself the question what would healthy rupee do and healthy rupee is someone who wakes up in the morning has had 8 hours of refreshing sleep and then does their morning activities which includes exercise etc cetera, etc cetera. and so by being intentional and asking my, myself that question before I press play again I'm looking at the time and it's like 9:15 and I know that it's going to be 10 p.m. before I put this down um that that helps me stay on the straight and narrow obviously sometimes i'm going to be like yeah whatever i'm going to watch the movie i'm going to, I'm going to have a bit of a blowout and and stay up this weekend but you know th- those that that little question what would healthy rupee do and having a clear idea about what healthy rupee is and how he behaves i think is a practice that people could personalize for themselves so what is healthy zoe what is healthy deepak what is healthy uh, Rosie look like you know what 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 is what is that for them is that something that that you 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 teach or yeah yeah and I think that comes back to the identity it's like having this avatar exactly and you know there are things that you can do as well to decide in front so what you basically want to be doing is separating the decision so you're making the decision ahead of time so you know when you think okay I do want to watch some television how can I make it such that it's easy for me to watch an hour or whatever you want to watch rather than three hours and think about how you can do that. So, you know, I basically avoid the series because I know they're so addictive. <laughs> I do as but well. I, you mean, might... I avoid series. If I see a series is like, and it's more than eight episodes, it's a straight no. If it's like f- five or six episodes and there's like 10 seasons, straight no. Like I, I, I've, I've missed out on a lot of really good TV. I haven't watched Sopranos. I never watched uh, The Wire. I didn't watch... Um, the meth, uh, who's the one with the meth lab breaking, but I never watched that just because I knew it was. I watched that in Spanish. <laughs> I'm sure it helped with the Spanish. It was hey, part of yeah, learning Spanish. yeah, absolutely. Oh, there, there you go. That was an educational reason. Yeah, but when you watch it in Spanish, you're not so addicted to it. It's not like, oh, so there you go. You could watch it in a different language. And after one, you'll be like, my brain hurts. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. There are other ways. You could do something like, I've got an important meeting afterwards. So I've got a firm cutoff. Or, you know, for my kids, they love screen times and have, I don't know, Xboxes and all of this stuff. But we put a time limit on it and it just cuts out. 
So they know they've got an hour and they can't go beyond that. And yeah, they're upset at times. But when you create that limit, and it's partly for yourself, like you might just go, okay, my limit is 10 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock, no screens or 9.30, whatever you want. Once you've made that a really firm limit within yourself, you've made that decision, then it becomes much easier. I find another one that people do is eating after dinner time. It's so easy to not eat after dinner. It's such an easy um, health trick, if you see what I mean, to just, you know, give yourself a little bit more break after dinner, to not, you know, push your glucose levels up for just a little bit of extra enjoyment. And once you get into the habit of doing that, it's really easy. Obviously, changing that habit, you need to do a little bit of work around it. And a lot of it is the way we think about things. Yeah, no, I think there are some incredible tips there. You know, creating a vision for yourself, having a systems approach, repetition, um, and also uh, being uh, being easy on yourself as well at times as well, because it can be hard. I think habit change can be made easier, but in itself, you know, certainly if you're starting, depending on where you're starting, uh, it is tough. Um, so yeah, having having all those different tools in your toolbox of habit change, I think is is brilliant. What, what, do you recommend any resources for for people? Obviously, other than your your lovely website, uh, that would uh, that would help people with these tools of change. Well, obviously, my book that's just about <laughs> to come. <laughs> So yeah, I've just written a book and I'm going to shamelessly plug it. Um, it's called Building Simple Habits to a Healthy Me. And essentially, it's a really short book. It's not meant to be loads and loads of information. It it has worksheets. It goes over my four pillars and in brief, what is healthy living. But you have worksheets of where you are now and where you would like to be and what does life look like there. And then more importantly, it has habit trackers Mm. so you can decide like there's a suggested habit tracker but you get 13 weeks of habit tracking so there's habit trackers there's a food you know a diary a meal planner essentially which you have to fill in yourself and then a gratitude like to write down gratitudes because gratitude and you know the way we think about things getting yourself in that positive energy is just a you know game changer essentially so the idea is you can do it all by yourself with my amazing habit tracker. Yeah, the soil of change is gratitude. That's what I like to think. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you so much for your tips and advice. And uh, I wish you well with the book. It sounds wonderful. Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's bonus episode of The Doctor's Kitchen. Make sure you check out the newsletter, thedoctorskitchen.com. And also, if you haven't tried the app, give the app a try. There's a 14-day free trial. You can find it in the App Store. And Android users, yes, we are certainly working on an Android version and it will be out later on this year. Thank you so much for your patience and I will see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 